Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, good morning. It's great to see each of you here and great to be joined by uh, many of you uh, online as well. Well, I mentioned this a while back. I've got a little space before our, our Christmas series, and we have a missions week coming up in a couple of weeks as well. And I said I would come back to our series, uh, Raw, or Real Authentic Worship. It was a series we started in the summer on the Psalms. And so when we have little breaks between other series, uh, I want to be able to bounce back to that. And we're going to do that today with one of, the, one of the greatest pieces of ancient literature that's ever been written. It was actually written by Moses, the leader of Israel. I've entitled our message, Life is Short, Too Short. In the movie Gladiator, the movie begins with an incredible battle scene. The Roman army is in the north of Europe for its final battle against the Germanic tribes. In the movie, at least, this is sort of the last frontier before Roman dominion. The battle lines are drawn. The infantry and the cavalry are ready to attack. The infantry from the front, the cavalry in the woods from behind, from different directions. Fireballs from giant catapults are raining on the enemy positions. And just before the attack, General Maximus Decimus Meridius, who's Russell Crowe, if you haven't seen the movie, gives a speech to his cavalry, where he is trying to sort of pump them up for this charge where many of them could lose their lives. His theology is a little suspect as he references Elysium, not heaven, but anyway, it's a great movie. But I do agree with this. His final charge to them right before they actually charge is this. What we do in life echoes in eternity. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Now that is Christian theology 101. We live as Christ followers with an eternal perspective. We believe in life after death. We believe in reward for a life well lived, and there are a lot of passages in Scripture which talk about that. And we believe that because of that, time becomes a commodity in that equation, because life is short, too short. Old Testament scholar Peter Craigie, I found this illustration, preachingtoday.com, an illustration database I use, and I knew I'd recognize that name. And he wrote commentaries, and I'll talk about that in a few moments. But he's an Old Testament scholar, Peter Craig. He explored the Bible's view on the brevity of human life. And at one point in his career, he wrote, life is extremely short, and if its meaning is to be found, it must be found in the purpose of God, the giver of all life. He claimed that recognizing the transitory nature of our lives is a starting point in achieving the sanity of a pilgrim in an otherwise mad world. He wrote those words in 1983, when I was two. In the first, so last week I said 40 is the new 60, remember? I wasn't kidding, we're starting at 40. So he wrote those in 1983 in the first of three planned volumes on the Psalms. So he started a, a three-volume set in the Psalms. He got through the first volume in a prestigious scholarly commentary series known as Word Biblical Commentary. Two years later, he died in a car accident, leaving his commentary incomplete. He was 47. 
His life was taken before he and his loved ones expected, before he could accomplish his good and worthy goals. Yet in his short life, he bore witness to the breathtaking horizon of eternity. He bore witness to how embracing our mortal limits go hand in hand with offering our mortal bodies to the Lord of life. He lost his life while reflecting on the brevity of life. He never got to Psalm 90, which talks about that. He wrote, a book on the Psalms, Psalm 1 through 50. Now, what's fascinating about this, I knew I recognized that name. I started looking it up. And as I'm looking it up, I'm seeing he's got things about, uh, I believe, about Ugaritic or Old Semitic languages that were published by the University of Calgary. And so I go to his biography, and he's a really famous scholar. If he would have lived, he would have been one of the longer, he would have been one of the most well-known Old Testament scholars of my lifetime. He wrote a commentary on Deuteronomy in the New International Commentary in the Old Testament series set. He wrote on Psalms 1 through 50 right before he died for Word Biblical Commentary, which is a well-known commentary set. He was an expert in Semitic languages. He died on September 26, 1985. He'd written many other commentaries, many other things about Old Testament Semitic languages. He died in a car accident on September 26, 1985, in Alberta. He died as the vice president of academics at the University of Calgary. It's a small world. Life is short. Too short. I want to read with you one of the greatest pieces of literature that's really ever been written. To me, this is superior to David's work in Psalm 23. It's Psalm 90, it's on page 432 in the Old Testament, in your Bible in front of you, page 432. It is a classic piece of ancient literature written by Moses. So it's likely one of the oldest, if not the oldest, psalm as well. Psalm 90, page 432. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back to dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they're like grass which sprouts new. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew, and toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger. By your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days have declined in your fury. We've finished our years with a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it's gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us, all the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm or establish the work of our hands. Now, there are very few theological concepts that I find 
almost impossible to grasp because to me the Bible makes sense and there are some difficult things in it. Uh, but the reality is people have been talking about it for thousands of years and so they've kind of, you know, there are different sides of, of the equation and various questions and arguments. But in general, God is not illogical. And difficult passages and difficult theological issues have explanations. And if you've studied the Bible your whole life, you kind of rest on certain explanations for things that are difficult. Tough theological questions aren't new. They, they all have answers to some degree whether we like them or not. But one thing I find impossible to grasp, it, it, it kind of gives you the old brain freeze, you know, like you're at, you just drank the, you know, the slushy. That is the eternality of God. I cannot get my brain around that. The future eternality of God is easy. I have no problem with a God who begins today and lasts forever. He's God. I have no problem with the future eternality of you and I, that once we were conceived, we were eternal beings and, and we would last forever. I don't have any issue with that. It's the beginning of God that is difficult for all of us to comprehend because he has no beginning. It's, as we talked about in our last series, it's what we have in common with the atheists. We both have exactly the same problem. They can't explain how all things came into being without a first cause or a first mover. That is the problem with atheism. But in fairness to the atheists, we can't explain how God came into being as people who believe he had no beginning. We both have this problem with first cause. He described himself to Israel as I am, which means basically the self-existent one. He had no beginning. And because of that, verse 2, he gave birth to our reality, to our world. Before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. couple definitions about God's eternality. One is that God has what we call aseity. It's from a Latin A and then C-S-E. It means he is from or by himself. Now, you're never going to find that word uh, in the Bible, but that word is sort of described in the Bible by God's self-existence. This is his aseity. Some say this is God's first attribute. Others would say God's primary attribute is holiness. But some say this is sort of a primary attribute before that because it's absolutely necessary for everything else. That, that he has to exist from or by himself because he was here before anything else existed. He is not anywhere in any way dependent on anything outside of himself. He has sufficient resources within himself for all that he is and all that he does. This is his aseity. God's eternality is God's aseity with respect to time. He exists above and apart from time. He enters time to accomplish his purposes, but God doesn't think about his eternality because he just is. We think about it because we're not eternal until we come into existence. The Bible begins not with an explanation of how God got here. In the beginning, God. Because it's, it's our beginning. It's the earth's beginning. God was already so we think about God's eternality because of our short lives on earth. Hence Psalm 90. That's what Moses is saying. He says, you turn man back to dust. We come and go. You're the constant. A thousand years are just like yesterday in the mind of God. A thousand years, a watch in the night. Like if you're a shepherd, you're on duty for four hours during one of those watches of the night. A thousand years are like four hours. You sweep us away like a flood. 
Not like just a river, but like a flood where you, know, you see something up on the right and it's, it's in the water and the flood is crashing so fast within moments it's gone. That's your life. He says we're like new grass in high heat. If you've ever tried to grow new grass, you know what he's talking about. You know, you, you have some spots on your yard because of, you know, whatever, uh, the dog or whatever through the winter, and you, so you're going to plant some new grass, so you scrape up the ground, you put out some grass seed, and you know that as soon as that grass comes up, especially here, it's kind of dry, you have to water it every day or that grass will come up one day, and within a day or two, it's gone. And that was the climate that Moses wrote in. He said, that's your existence. That's our existence compared to an eternal God. Reminds me, the guy went to the doctor. The doctor says, well, I I have some bad news for you. And he'd gone for a checkup, got a call. He wasn't able to talk to the doctor for a day or so. And finally he gets a hold of the doctor. He goes in there. The doctor says, you got 48 hours to live. The guy says, well, that is bad news. The doctor says, I got some worse news. What could be worse than that? I've been trying to get a hold of you since yesterday. (laughs) That's our lives. That's our lives. Moses even did the math. He says you get 70 to 80 years. It's not even like 24 hours compared to eternity. That's our lives. And we're all at different points on that journey. And not all of us can count on 70 to 80 years. You, you even get to my age, and you'll have friends dropping over dead. And it's like, you know, you can live till you're 95, or you can be gone tomorrow. That's life. Second, in the light of God's moral expectations, life is lived with the consequences of our choices. This is a beautiful psalm. But it's also a little depressing. But it was written by Moses. The superscriptions are in in the Hebrew Bible. They're actually the first verses. Now, I've talked about how there's a little controversy over whether these first words above the Psalms are actually included in the originals. And by that, I wouldn't mean the God's eternity and man's transitoriness. I believe that's just the, the editors of this particular version. But a prayer of Moses, the man of God, is the superscription. It's the beginning of the Psalm. If you go to the Hebrew Bible, that's actually going to be verse 1. And so liberal scholars have said, well, those are just added later and they're trying to take away sort of the authorship of some of these psalms. We have no reason to really question these because in the oldest Hebrew Bibles, they do exist. And again, they're first verses in those Bibles. So we assume this is Moses. Psalm says it's Moses. So Moses writes this extremely thoughtful but borderline depressing psalm. And the question is, when did he write it? When were things like this that he would put something like this to writing? Well, I doubt if it was written when he was young. He grew up as an adopted prince in Egypt, as you know, and things were pretty good for him. So I doubt if he's writing it then, because he would have written a happy psalm. Although I don't know if Moses had a lot of happy psalm moments, but he would have written something happier. I doubt if it was written while the nation watched God humble Egypt. Moses comes back from from sort of the land of promise. He goes back over to to Egypt, and God has told him to to tell the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go as they've been in slavery for hundreds of years. And, And then Moses watched and was used as a tool of God as God humbled the nation of Egypt with all those plagues. I don't I don't think it's written then. That would be a much happier psalm as well, a victory psalm. 
And I doubt if it was written after sort of in that post-Exodus period when they're heading to Canaan. They just experienced miracles. So even though it doesn't say it, I think it's pretty safe to assume that this followed the first and worst church business meeting in history when things really went south for the nation of Israel. So after years of slavery, Moses comes to rescue God's people. He goes back to Egypt, and as we just said, God humbled Egypt with a series of plagues. The nation of Israel is living in the land of Goshen, sort of a suburb of Egypt, if you will, of of the capital, and and they're there, and these plagues are avoiding the nation of Israel, but they're they're just punishing the nation of Egypt. Finally, that sort of breaks down Pharaoh's will, and Pharaoh lets them leave, and then he makes a quick change of minds, like, I'm just not going to do this. His pride sort of wells back up, and he decides to take his army, and he might just either force them to come back or wipe them out, but he's chasing them to the Red Sea. Israel's pinned against the Red Sea, and then we have that great miracle where God moves the walls of water back, and you have multiple generations walking through the Red Sea. I just watched the movie with Christian Bale, and you'd see that, like, the God of Egypt, you know what I'm talking about? You haven't seen that? A lot of times when they take Bible stories and put them to life, they really wreck them. And I didn't think, they they wrecked them, but they didn't wreck them quite as bad as I expected. So it was pretty cool. I mean, they're walking through on dry land, and then, you know, the Egyptians are thinking, well, if they can do it, we can do it. You know, our gods are with us. That army goes out and follows them. The waves of water come back over them, destroys much of the army of Egypt. They have just experienced the 10 plagues on Egypt, which I would say are natural disasters sort of on steroids because God's involved with them. They're these supernatural, natural disasters. Now they've seen God open the Red Sea. God is with them. They come to the edge of Canaan and they send out 12 dudes to figure out what it's going to be like to take on the countries that are now occupying the promised land. Spies come back. After 40 days, 10 of them don't want to move forward, don't want to proceed. Two of them say, let's get her done, before Larry the Cable Guy said it. They patented that. It's in the Hebrew. Two of them want to move forward. 10 do not. God was not happy. Because this wasn't just a simple decision. God had displayed his power and commitment in miraculous ways. The scale of his miracles was the greatest since creation. There's been nothing like this up until now. And he couldn't reward this level of unbelief. The people of Israel at that point were rejecting Moses as leader. They're refusing to trust in the one who had just delivered them miraculously over and over and over. And God knew they just weren't weren't ready. And he couldn't reward that. So at that moment, in the worst church business meeting in history, he said to a couple of million people, not one of you who's over 20 years of age gets to enter the promised land. Except for, neither were a couple exceptions. The two spies who were faithful. Nobody else They would wander for 40 years in the desert until that older generation or two or three died off. He would take care of them. You know, there'd be manna every day, etc. But their dreams, their dreams, what they were supposed to be as a nation, 
would never be realized by the older generations. Only the children and young people would experience it. They were all living out a suboptimal experience. Life was altered. Every day was a reminder of one key fatal mistake made by their parents and grandparents. Every day was lived out under a sense of divine disapproval. And life is short. It's too short. And that was going to be their existence. Now this psalm makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Why it seems so depressing. Look at verse 7. We have been consumed by your anger. By your wrath we've been dismayed. You've placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days have declined in your fury. we finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. Sort of the best of it. Hard work and disappointment. Soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Makes a little more sense now. They were living out a suboptimal existence. Now, we're not Old Testament Israel, right? We're not Old Testament Israel. We're modern-day Canadians, right? But we live with regret. We're not typically, very few of us are probably living out plan A in our lives, like the perfect life. Because in all of our lives, we get off the path. We make some choices. And as a result of that, whether it's our own choices or the choices of others, in in many ways, we don't have sort of the optimal life that we started out thinking we would live. We live with the consequences as well. We never get plan A back. And for many of us, we live with some regret. And even if you feel like you're living plan A, there's things around you that, that you have regret about, some which you can't control. God is still with us. He may even be blessing us. He still blessed them in the desert. He fed them every day with manna. But they always were living out regret because of the past. Welcome to reality for most people. And if you're not one of those, it's possible you just haven't lived long enough. So what's the answer? Is our best life 70 to 80 years a feeling like things could have been better. Moses says this. The best we can do is live wisely within the short time that we have and that we have left. Verse 12. I'm going to put it up there. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Of wisdom. Now this addresses kind of both issues that we've talked about and adds a third. It addresses the brevity of life. God, we, we need you to help us to number our days because they are so short. So it's addressing that issue which we've talked about and, and it's sort of addressing, you know, how do we live without regret? It addresses God's expectations and their consequences on us. The reality is wisdom is, is a skill. If you look at the word in Old Testament culture, the way it's used in some contexts, if you had a bricklayer, he you would have the wisdom in bricklaying. If you had a, a musician, the wisdom in music, it was like a skill. The word means skill. And so it's the skill of living a life with the fear of God in mind. That's wisdom. But it also adds an element here right after this verse. It addresses an appeal to God to show mercy. It actually says, God, be sorry for us, verse 13. 
Verse 14, it says, God, be loyal to us. And he uses the word chesed, which is, is the Hebrew word for God's covenant commitment to Israel. And then he says, restore joy in verse 15. Act greatly in verse 16. Give meaning to our broken lives, verse 17. He's begging God to help them to take the time that they have left and add meaning to it. The best we can do is live wisely within the short time that we have. Life is short, two short apps. Let's take a few, think about a few things as we close here before uh, communion. First, take the long look when you're at an ethical crossroads. Psalm 90, one of the greatest psalms written, written by Moses, was completely avoidable. Now he may still have written a nice psalm, but this isn't really one that you wanna write because it was completely avoidable. What if the 12 spies came back to Israel and they just said, you know what, guys, gals, it's not gonna be easy. It is not gonna be easy. But God is with us. Remember what he did for us back in Egypt. Remember the Red Sea when generations of you were walking across experiencing a real miracle. They could have said, you know, there's gonna be some battles, but Moses hasn't led us astray yet, so we got him. Moses is our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. They could have said that. They could have said, you know, a little before the time, no pain, no gain. We're going to suffer some losses, but God's with us. But they didn't. They chose to not trust God, and it altered their futures, especially if you're young. So many times you face decisions and you're thinking, you know, I can, I can do this. I can kind of violate what I know God really wants me to do and how he wants me to live and I can recover. Nothing's a big deal. I can confess it, move on. There won't be any consequences. Well, I got to tell you, if you ever talk to the people who are older than you, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, you know what? We have regrets about things we did when we were young at times. And in some cases, they altered lives a bit. If you're young, be wise early. Avoid that pain. Moses, I'm sure, wished he would have never had to write this psalm. Second, adopt God's math. The brevity of life incentivizes wise living. God wants us to think about the brevity of our lives. In a 2020 podcast, musician David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young uh, opened up about his own mortality. And he had a lot of health issues. I think he's still alive, still has a lot of health issues. But he says this. It's interesting because this isn't coming from somebody who would claim to be an evangelical Christian. But it just shows how all of us as people think about this. We don't have anywhere near enough time, he said. I didn't start figuring out who I was until I was in my 50s. Yeah. And here I am just now finally having adjusted my life to where I'm happy most of the time and I'm going to die. You know, it's very tough. I got a dozen things I still want to learn. There's three languages, two sections of history, at least five sciences, and I've got a wish list of places I want to see, experiences I want to have in no time. And it's worse than that. I wasted years of time that I could have now could have now to use if I hadn't wasted them. 
And he's probably talking about, you may not know him, he's got a significant drug history. He had his liver replaced a while back. I think Phil Collins, if you're familiar with Phil Collins, famous musician, great voice. Phil Collins? Nah, never mind. Phil Collins paid for David Crosby's liver transplant. So he said, here I am looking at death. You have a feeling about your own mortality. Everybody does. My feeling is that it's probably imminent. I'm not likely to live too much longer. And so what does that do? Well, it makes you want to get a whole lot done. I'm singing every day. I'm not as distressed by the death part as I am by the lack of time. The death part, I don't do it in a regular enough fashion to claim to be a Buddhist, but I think the Buddhists got it right. I always have thought that. So I think I'm going to recycle. I think that my life energy is going to come around again. I would suggest, based on the word of God, he's probably wrong about that. But this is from a guy who spent much of his young life destroying his body, drugs, and so on. Doesn't share a theology. Great musician. Talking about the brevity of life. He's thinking about how much time he has left. How much more should we be thinking about that because we live in light of eternity. Adopt God's math. Third, never give up on God's forgiveness and renewed blessing. Nobody lives a perfect life. And I love the fact that when Moses is talking about this, I mean, it is a somewhat depressing psalm. I'm sure everyone's, you know, learning, hey, Moses is writing something for us, you know, and then they start, you know, spreading it out and expanding, you know, the copyists are writing it down, getting the scrolls out to different tribes and, you know, different clans and so on. And they're like, hey, this is going to be exciting. And then they read this depressing psalm, you know. Moses is writing something. It's going to change our lives. Moses wrote at the end of this, which is really fascinating because they're living under God's disapproval. There's no way around it. They're living out their existence in suboptimal lives because of the choices they made. And yet he's basically saying, God, that's not okay. We want to feel your forgiveness. We want a sense of renewed blessing. And the whole last part of the psalm is begging God to let them experience that even though they're never going to live out plan A. You know, Moses knew about that. There's a whole litany of people in the Bible who get that. Moses murdered a dude. He was on the run for murder. Now, I know when we're little, you know, and you go to Sunday school, it's like, oh, Moses killed an Egyptian. I guess that's okay. You know, and the Sunday school teacher doesn't necessarily tell you, you know, that was actually murder, you know, they're supposed to kill him for it. But sometimes the, the, the editor of Scripture doesn't always tell you the moral commentary about what people do. We're supposed to conclude, yeah, you don't get to kill people. Moses killed an Egyptian. He was a murderer. David committed adultery and murder. Paul was killing Christians, and he was doing it legally. It wasn't like against the law. He's killing Christians. Then he became one. He realized that wasn't a good idea. Rahab, she was a prostitute for a lot of years. Peter denied knowing Jesus That's a little hard to overcome at the most critical moment of Jesus' life. But what do they all have in common? Big mistakes. I mean, if you can outdo Moses, David, Paul, Rahab, and Peter, you know, raise your, don't raise your hand. But really, can you really outdo murder, adultery, killing Christians, prostitution, and denying Jesus? That's quite a list. Those are our heroes. Those are my heroes. They're like the bad boys and bad girls of the Bible. What do they have in common? Big mistakes. Second, they got up. They moved on. Third, they grew from them. 
They were better in some cases as a result of their failures. Never give up on God's forgiveness and renewed blessing. You haven't done anything that God can't get up from. Can you? Moses was begging God to kind of give them that joy of salvation and recognize there's still life, there's still a future for us. And finally, remember, you will rarely be rewarded later for something you're not working on now. Now that's from Pastor Paul, that's not from Moses. But the point is, you know, we want to have this eternal perspective in mind. We want to think that way. And yet often, we don't really gear our lives towards getting the result of that, towards getting that reward. So like if, you, if you're here and you're young, you know, you might think, you know, I'm, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm 12 and I want a, an Olympic gold in the marathon, you know, and I'm 12. Well, you know what you should probably do? Start running, you know, a little every day. Get some tennies. You want a, an Olympic gold in the biathlon? You know what you should do? You should probably have a gun and learn to shoot. And you should probably ski some. You know, you're just not going to get an Olympic gold in the biathlon. You, you, wanna, you have a goal to be a brain surgeon. You know, and, and, and you're 15. You know what you should probably do? Actually get good grades in high school and college. Because we just don't give that scalpel to just anybody. You want God's reward? When we pass into eternity someday, do the things that would get that for you. Live like it today because life is short. Remember, you'll rarely be rewarded for something you're not working towards now. God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for this reminder of what our lives are ultimately like compared to you compared to your moral perfection and the fact that you are here forever. As the psalmist said, may we live our lives purposefully as a result of that. Teach us to number our days that we may have hearts of wisdom. Now as we enter into a time of communion, I pray that you would bring us back to those moments in history where you did so much to give us the forgiveness and the lives that we have today and in the future. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.